great message. He is still alive. Amen. All right. Well, I want to say I appreciate everything that has been done today. I appreciate all the work that went into the breakfast this morning. Those that, uh, again, invited friends and family to be here as well. Uh, it's been a great day in the Lord, I believe. And uh, I certainly appreciate the influence that Sarah has on Pastor Dustin's life. Just want to put a plug in for that. Notice he's a much brighter individual now. If you haven't noticed his socks, take a look at those and you'll see what I'm talking about. Let's turn in your Bibles tonight. We'll be in Ezra chapter number 9 this evening. Ezra chapter number 9. Last week we finished up with Ezra chapter number 8. So let's uh, again just do a little quick recap of what we looked at. We looked at the fellow priest and uh, the followers of Ezra and the fast that was proclaimed. Last week we continued again studying chapter number 8, beginning of verse number 22, the faith of Ezra. Ezra had a great amount of faith, again, leading this expedition with these inexperienced travelers wanting to go uh, from <clears throat> where they were at in Babylon all the way back to uh, Jerusalem was a long journey, a long trip. And uh, again, they were nothing more than just simple people, but Ezra was willing to go and lead them back. Uh, there was no armed ex, uh, escorts that were taking them back from the king. Uh, they were just inexperienced travelers going back, willing to follow his lead. His faith was based on the trust in the living God who could take care of everything. That's something we need to stop and think about in our lives. Are we faithful and trusting God in all the decisions we do and everywhere we go and all that goes on in our life? Are we trusting Him with everything? His intellect and emotion helped establish the faith in what was needed to trust God on this journey. He looked at the, the freight, uh, of course, that was brought back with him, 25 tons of silver, 4 tons of gold, and other treasures and offerings that were given to them to bring back. And of course, with all that was going on and all that was taking this journey, Ezra held the priest accountable, again, for guarding it, making sure it was to arrive safely. And uh, again, this was a four-month journey that lasted 900 miles of traveling until they finally arrived home, where they waited three days, reweighed all the treasures... And once all the business was done, they took time to worship. And that was probably a very important process to stop and think about having the opportunity to worship God back in your homeland. So that was kind of a quick review of chapter 8. This evening, we'll begin here in chapter number 9. But let's have a word of prayer as we go into this message this evening. Lord, again, we thank you for all that you've done for us today and all the blessings that we were able to receive this morning, this evening as well. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Again, as we've opened up your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, directing guidance this evening, Lord, as we take time to focus on what happened here, what Ezra went through, what he did, and Lord, again, being a faithful follower of you, but also, Lord, as we look at partaking of the elements this evening and remembering your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, again, it's what you have commanded us to do to remember that, and we take part in that this evening also. I pray that you'd bless that time as well. But Lord, speak to our hearts. Help us, direct us, and guide us this evening. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Tonight, as we come to chapter number 9 in our study of the book of Ezra, can you imagine what Ezra was feeling now that he was back uh, in his homeland, back in Jerusalem, um, where, uh, again, things that maybe he was dreaming of at one time to... Um, Going and, you know, I can't wait one day when I get to begin, uh, get in Jerusalem and I get to worship and, and I get to see the temple and, and all these different things. Maybe he had been told about from his, his grandparents and parents or whatever and all these different things maybe have going through his mind. 
like other priests and pastors, maybe he had some high expectations of, of what would happen when I get to the new city. What am I going to do? What are my responsibilities? What, uh, what has God called me to do? And how am I going to perform those different things? Here in Ezra chapter 9, verse number 1, it says uh, that first phrase, Now when these things were done, we think back and, and think about that they were arrested. They weighed their treasures. They met with the king's leaders, and now they were able to focus on the responsibilities that were given to them. Maybe uh, he had the thought of, well, I've arrived now. All right, what am I going to institute? What am I going to do? How am I going to do things? And again, he reminded every one of their responsibilities, the service in the church. Each one of them had things that they were to do. And what we would maybe consider today, maybe he thought this way. All right, uh, I'm in a new church. Uh, maybe he got everybody together and was asking them, okay, uh, well, how's Sunday school going? Is everybody teaching their classes okay? Uh, what kind of curriculum are you using or do you have any? Uh, is there any specific studies that you, you've been doing? What was the messages that you've heard? And, and how was God moving and directing uh, in our lives? What is our missions program like? What are the finances? of the church and all these different questions that maybe have come through his mind that he was bringing before the people. Uh, again, coming to a new place, you want to make sure everything is done right, started right, because the responsibility is now upon his shoulders. So again, maybe he took this time to ask these types of questions and what was going on. But all these things are different things, uh, uh, again, that most pastors would think about as they would... Um, come to a new location and, and decided to, to get things right or where they feel it needed to be. Now the newness had worn off, so time had passed a little bit. <sighs> okay, I've tried things, I've done things, and so on and so forth. So what's going to happen or what's going on? You know, when, when things happen, when you're new in the area, you kind of see different things. Okay, yeah, that's fine. But once the newness wears off, things begin to expose themselves. You begin to see what's going on, how people really are, and how they handle things. So as the beginning of what we find here in chapter number 9, we find first off is the problem. Number 1 this evening is the problem. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter number 9. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land, doing everything excuse me, doing according to their abominations, even to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in the trespasses. So you may read this first verse and think, well, look, there's the tattletales right there. But that's not what it's talking about. That's not the problem that we see in the church what's going on. Uh, the big problem here is, uh, again, he was a leader. He was the one that was in charge. And I'm sure he had different people that had different responsibilities within the church. And they were coming and just letting him know. Kind of like what we have today uh, with our deacons. They're the ones that are to serve the table. They're the ones that are to the minister to the families. And yes, they come and they let me know. Uh, again, it's a way that the, the, the Bible gives us to operate as a church. With Ezra being new, he could have easily, uh, these things could have been covered up. These things could have been pushed to the side and no one would have known what was going on. No one would have seen the problems. But the main problem that we find are the sinful people. This group of nobles of Israel had informed Ezra of the decisions of many in Jerusalem. The sin was that of intermarriage. 
They had taken foreign wives. Now again, you stop and think about what was going on here. The Jewish people were a chosen group. They were not to marry outside of their nationality. Again, this was for the nation of Israel. Um, <clears throat> but what had happened exactly was these men decided, well, I like this and I like that. And, and their eyes began to look otherwhere or elsewhere instead of focusing on who God had them to marry. Some may think that, well, it's not a very big deal. But again, it's something that went against what God had commanded. They had, been willful, they had willfully broken God's law. You can go back and look at Exodus chapter 34. Also look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and see where they were not to defile themselves in this way. Marriage is the closest and most intimate relationship we could ever have. This is why the relationship with God is often pictured as a marriage. It should be one of intimacy. It should be one that we focus so much on. And it should be the closest relationship that we have. Their hearts were turned away from God and turned to strange gods. And again, it's important that we understand that we are to focus on God. Not to get pulled away. Not to go in a different direction. But again, it's important who we marry because of that. And that's why the Bible is very emphatic about what we're to do when it comes to marriage. It's important that we follow his guidelines and rules, that we are not to marry those that are unsaved. Now, again, stop and think. Two people that God sees today are the saved and the lost. That's all there is. A lot of people say, well, this nationality, there's the saved and there's the lost. That's all there is. But they are not to be joined together. Again, saved or to marry the saved. And, oh, well, you know, if we get saved, I'll pull them in. No, you won't. It doesn't work that way. Oftentimes, you will get pulled away from God versus pulling someone to God. Stop and look at Solomon as an example. Solomon, of course, was the wisest man to walk the face of the earth apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened when he had some wives that decided they didn't like uh, who he liked? Or, again, he married some that he should not have married. What happened to them? They begin to pull him away from God. Go back and you study, um, is it Ecclesiastes, where his, his moaning and bewailing of what his relationship was like and how it was pulling him away. Again, it's important who we marry. It's important that we focus on what it is and who it is God has for us. But these sinful people in Jerusalem could have easily been swayed by their leadership as well. Again, if you were to turn back and look at chapter number 10, you will find there's a list of 113 men that decided to intermarry the wrong people. So why is this a big problem? Again, the Jews were called to be a holy nation. Go back and study in Exodus chapter 19. Not because they were better than anyone else, but God had chosen them as his people, and he loved them enough and set them apart that they were to follow his will. That's a picture of us today, by the way. We are not here to replace the, the, the Israel. The church is not here to replace them. But if you are saved this evening... You have a calling on your life. So again, it's something we are to consider and think about as well. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 9 tells us, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should not show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we've been called out of darkness. We've been called to follow him in the light that he's placed us in and everything we do. Looking back at those names in, in chapter number 10, you will find that, there were many involved with this problem. It wasn't just the poor people. There were some that were from the Levite tribe. This is the most sacred tribe in all of Israel. And yet they were a part of this problem as well. There were the singers, the porters. 
And the priests, all who served in the temple, were being part of this intermarriage problem as well as common people. So could you imagine being in the temple one day and uh, you're sitting there and you're listening to uh, Jezebel or whoever it is that's up there preaching and you're wondering, why is it that if he can go marry outside of the nation of Israel, why can't I? The influence that's there. These were servants of the temple. They were to set the example as leaders to all that follow him. So we got to stop and think about who are we influencing in our lives? Who is it that we are setting the example for? You don't have to be just in a position of leadership to be an example. Yes, we look at moms and dads. We look at teachers, adults, bosses, things like that. But, you know, if you're an older sibling, Andrew, you could easily influence those in your family. They're watching you, big brother. Caleb, they're watching you, big brother. Elijah, they're watching you, big brother. We stop and think of it that, Mr. Ryan. You're influencing others. So you may think, well, I'm nobody. I'm a kid. You can influence somebody. So we've got to be careful about that and make sure we're following God and doing what He wants us to do. God had given the Jews a marriage covenant that they were to follow in they were not to defile themselves with their marriage outside of their own people. But they had done that. This was the idea of separation. Again, and that idea continues today. Separation is one of those doctrines that has been pushed aside in a lot of churches today. That's been looked at as being legalistic. But separation has nothing to do with salvation. So it is not legalistic at all. We are called to separate ourselves. We are called to be different. We are called to be uh, not of this world. So it's not something that is looked at as being part of our salvation. It's something we are to look at doing. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 14. It says, Be not equally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what hath communion hath light with darkness. So again, we're to look at that as well. That's a lot of times focused on marriage. But it should also be included in a lot of our other relationships. When you think of separation... It's not that we can just turn off and, and get rid of things, which should do that. But one of the important factors is that we are to separate from the world. Again, like I said, we are to be different as believers. Separation from this world doesn't mean that we're to go and, and build a monastery and stay there, or we're going to go live in caves and avoid anybody and everybody. It's separation, not isolation. We got to be in the world. We're to show Christ, uh, other people, the love of Christ, show that example to others. And in order to do that is we've got to be out among them, but yet we've got to understand where we need to separate and those boundaries are at in our lives. As believers, we are always in a spiritual battle. When we learn to push away from the world, all Satan tries to do is entice us and pull us back. And so we've got to be strong. We've got to establish that in our lives. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Wherefore come out from a Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So again, we've been given a demand, a command from, from God to come out from among them, to not be a part of them. Yes, we talk with them. Yes, we encourage them. Yes, we pray for them. But we've got to understand those boundaries in our lives and where they need to be. We need to ensure that we separate from the things that are displeasing to God. Separate from those things that are going to draw us back into the world as Satan wants to do. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 11 says, And ye have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. We need to learn to turn away from sin, to, from those things that will draw us away and draw closer to the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, Now we command your brethren in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the traditions which receive from us. Removing those evil associations are key to living close to God. Dr. Clarence Sexton wrote this in a book that he wrote about Ezra. He said the goal of separation is not to simply quit doing one thing or another. The goal is to give the Lord his rightful place in your life so that when you discover he is against something, you are against the same thing. Now, when we are church... Sunday night, and you're probably sitting here tonight saying, well, I'm the one here. I'm trying to separate ourselves, and I'm trying to get away from those things, and I'm grateful for that. But there's another idea that we need to stop and think about. Yes, we will separate from the wicked. We'll separate from those evil things. Yes, we know what they are. But when we separate from those things, we've got to separate to something. We separate from the world, and we separate ourselves to God. It's easy to get rid of the, the bad. It's easy to, to shun those things, but that kind of leaves us in limbo with what we're doing. So we've got to learn to draw closer to the Lord. We've got to learn to, to get as close as we can to Him. We shun those things that are evil, but turn to the Lord. It's much like trying to get rid of a habit in your life. There's a lot of times people will try to break the habit, but they'll take nothing to replace it. And it's easy to fall right back into that same problem, that same pattern in your life. For those that listen to the wrong kind of music, you can't just cut it out altogether. You've got to find something that is pleasing to God. Something that, uh, again, will fill that void that you're trying to get rid of. And draw closer to Him. So what happened when Ezra found out about these sins? Well, number two tonight, and my final point. Ezra's profound reaction, as we look at verses 3 and 4. Ezra's profound reaction. Verse 3 and 4. And when I heard these things, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hairs of my head and of my beard, and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Because of the transgressions of those that have been carried away, I sat astonished until... The evening sacrifice. Here in verses 3 and 4, we see the reaction of Ezra. After he found out that all the men that had walked away from their life and who they had married, some of them very possibly divorced wives that were from the Jewish nation and went to marry these other, uh, other nations. Again, it, it tore him up. It broke his heart. You can go back and look in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse number 1. It says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land where thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mighty than thou. These were the same people groups that God said to abstain from, but instead they decided to bring them into fellowship with them. And to marry them. Please understand again. It's not like they didn't know. It's not that God was saying. Hey 
you don't know what's going on, I'm going to take you out. Oh, they've been told this since the beginning of time. These are not the ones you're to marry. These are not the ones you're to accept and bring in. They've been taught this again since birth, but yet they've decided to allow it to happen, to bring them in. Scripture says Ezra rent his garment or his mantle. Tearing or renting your garment is an outward expression of sorrow and grief. He plucked or shaved his head and his beard. Another outward sign of pain that Ezra was feeling because of what the nation of Israel was doing. This was not just that they married strange wives, but it was because they were turning away from God and joining with the idolatrous living that these wives they married were part of. That's the whole reason for them, uh, uh, for, for what was going on and why he was so upset. We see people turning away from God all the time. But yet, they were not only turning away from God, they were turning to idols. They were turning to false gods. They were looking to other people and other religions versus what they knew was right. When we see he sat down and was astonished, the word astonished here means stunned or devastated or to grow numb. I'm sure anybody that's gone through any type of tragic incident or been received some type of news like that, you understand that feeling of, of being stunned or just numb all over. Again, it was a very difficult circumstance. Ezra was overwhelmed by the decision these people had made in such a short time. Again, most of them, if not, well, all of them that had come before had only been there for about 70 years. You think, well, that's a long time. It's not really a long time when you're looking at a nation. So they were there. They were drifting away from what they knew was right and marrying other people that they shouldn't have been. They were in captivity at one time, and God led them back to Jerusalem. They had seen God do some great mighty things, rebuilding the temple and the city. How could they disregard all that God had done for them? I think that's a question we ask continually as you look through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. How could they do that? How could they do that? How could they do that? And yet I see people today that once sat on these pews, once were faithful servers in the church, and I wonder, how can they do that? Just like I'm sure God looks down in my own life and questions, how can he do that? I think we can all be looked at that in that vantage point of turning against God, of not following Him as we know we should. We make the decision whether to do it or not. Some may look at Ezra's reaction as a bit much, maybe a little overdramatic, if you would. But this is how much the Lord meant to him. One question that comes to mind is the, the situation, is this the response of others? No one else was reacting the same way Ezra was. You notice that? No one was, uh, again, renting their garment. No one had torn their mantle. No one was plucking their hair out. No one was overwhelmed with what was going on. Everybody just kind of got accustomed to it. It's the norm. It's what always happens kind of idea. No one else was bothered. We see the same attitude today. We look at sin oftentimes and think, well, that's just the way the country's going. Oh, that's just what's happening here in America. Why aren't we upset with what's happening? Why aren't we, we bothered by the way the world and the country is going? Well, it's not my problem. That's kind of our attitude. That's kind of theirs as well. Not my problem. 
Not my circuits, not, not my monkeys. It doesn't worry about it. It's not that we don't care. It's not going to affect us, so why worry? Again, society today is no longer shocked by sin and willing to do anything about it. We label it or excuse whatever it is. We're no longer convicted by it. Too many Christians today are willing to come to church, even read the Bible, even listen to the message. I was going to say, even say amen, but every once in a while we'll get that. But they're willing to do that, to come to church, but yet they'll never take time to obey what they find in Scripture. Are we following what the Bible says? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Yes, there are many people that are trying, and I understand that. I try every day. Do I succeed every day? No. There are times that I fail just like everyone else. But there's even more people that say, well, you know, it's just too hard. What do you expect me to do? I'm not a preacher. I'm not like this person. I don't be labeled like that. But yet God gives us the same command to follow his will and his word. It all goes back to doing what we want instead of what God wants. So ask yourself this. Do you have the desire to change the way God wants you to change? Is there a longing to follow God closer today than you did yesterday? That needs to be our response. We are to have a readiness to change. Where was the counsel from those who saw what was going on? Why didn't someone stand up and say something? We see some assembled together there in verse number 4. Those who had experienced maybe the bondage in Babylon. Those that knew better. Some were afraid to say something. Now, I'll be honest. I don't like to confront people. Or I don't like to be a confrontationalist either. But we've got to learn to stand up for what is right. We've got to make sure that we're following God according to His Word. And the things around us are falling in line with the Word of God as well. Regardless, we all need to take that stand. The human race, or excuse me, the human nature, doesn't want to be labeled any different. And that's exactly what God has called us to be. We're to be different. We're to be that peculiar people, that strange people, if you would, as Titus chapter 2 verse 14 tells us. Who God gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. God wants us to take a stand for what is right, according to his word. This doesn't mean that we are to be hateful or mean-spirited about it. But we need to make sure we stand firm on what we believe. If we are to be true followers of the Lord, then we need to make sure the response we give is biblical. We don't find anyone in the text here that stood against sin. We don't see others where they may have gone to somebody biblically one-on-one -on -one and asked them, hey, what's the problem? Why are you uh, meddling with other people that you know you shouldn't be going to? We as God's people need to make sure that we give them God's answer. When we see problems, when, when we are questioned, it should always be what the Bible says. Have a heart of compassion toward other believers and share with them the warnings given by God. For those who are not saved, we must again share the message of salvation so they can know right from wrong. And it makes me wonder, do we ever get hurt or upset because of sin? Does sin ever bother us? We see what's going on in other people's lives. We possibly see them heading down the wrong path. 
But do we ever give them the warning? Do we ever stop and say, hey, can I share with you something? This is what I'm seeing, and I just want to make sure you, you understand. I want to keep you from going down that wrong path. Does it hurt? Yes. But would we be willing to show outwardly the pain we have inwardly because of the sin? Again, Ezra's just showing what's going on in his heart. Ezra's demonstrating to others the, the pain that he felt because of where the nation was heading. The world needs to see how sin affects us. And if it doesn't bother you, then maybe there's something that needs to be fixed inside. We are people of God. And we should let sin affect our lives. It's something we should look at changing, fixing, to be heard about. Because if it doesn't affect us, it's not going to show anything to the world. We won't make an impact at all for them. So stop and ask yourself, does sin bother me at all? I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes tonight again. As I ask the question, does my own sin bother me? Do I get hurt when I see others committing the things?